0: Like Wade said, my name's Anthony, and I get and have the privilege to bring the word this morning, and yeah, if you haven't had us over to your house for a meal, we'd love to have a free meal, and I heard that was uh, part of the perks, this job, but no, we, we would, uh, not just for the free food, but we would love to get to know you and your story and where you come from and what God is doing in you, so we also invite that um, uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to share, break bread together. But I have the privilege to, uh, to continue on in the book of James. We've heard in the first chapter um, that real faith, when tested, won't break, won't waver, won't say, I give up. That God promises there is gonna be trials. There is gonna be a testing of your faith and that this genuine faith will stay strong in the truth and the knowledge and the wisdom of our God. And it's gonna gonna be a faith that says, hey, not only do I hear, not only do I read the words of this faith, but I will live it out in the context of a Christ-centered community for the sake of the world we live in. And now James in chapter two is gonna kind of switch gears here and say, hey, this faith that I talked about in chapter one this is what it's going to look like to live it out in this world. So he's going to flesh it out a little more for the, ne- for the next few chapters and tell us, hey, this is what it's going to look like. And specifically, in, in, so in, at the beginning of chapter two, he says, hey, your faith will show no favoritism, will show no prejudice, no discrimination. But in order to meet this prejudice in order to meet favoritism head on it has to start in humility so that we're able to see others how God sees them we're able to value others how God values them and then when we see them as he sees them we're able to love them as our neighbor as ourselves so let's read James 2 Will you please stand with me as we read the word of God together. We're gonna to read James 2. Start in verse one and we're gonna read through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, come sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to all those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. So speak And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Jesus, may your spirit fill this place. May you give us ears to hear your message this morning. God, may you show up. Thank you that we now live under the law of liberty, the freedom to love our neighbor as ourselves, the freedom to show grace and mercy because we have been shown that same grace and mercy and love from you. God, may we extend that to our neighbor, to our community, to our nation. God, we love you because you first loved us. Into your name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. Real faith, this faith, will fight against favoritism and prejudice. But to do this, we have to have a humility. We have to humble ourselves so that we can see others how God sees them. And then we're able to love others. As ourselves. Now here we need to remember that James is writing to Christians who probably for the most part were all very poor. And who lived in a partial age filled with prejudice and discrimination based on class, ethnicity, language, religion. Lived in an age where they were uh, permanently segregated or labeled. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Greek or barbarian. And in fact, much of human history has struggled with this sin of discrimination, this sin of favoritism and prejudice. What are some ways, even now, in our current world, in our current culture, what are some areas we see favoritism, prejudice, discrimination? I wanna hear from you. race employment. employment the way you dress labeled by the way you dress. Common, sense. The common sense what else how else do we label people money money what kind of phone they have, kind of phone they have? <laughs> are you an are you an apple guy or a samsung <laughs> <laughs> old, taking it back to the old school, there. All right, all right. Yes, all of these and more are labels. Either our culture will will tag us with, or we even label ourselves with. Right, rich or poor, by our position, by our status. By our influence. We even put those labels on ourselves. In verse 1, James starts right off. Main point My brothers, show no favoritism as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Favoritism should have no place in our lives or within the church because this attitude stands in direct contradiction to God's own evaluation of the poor. The lost, the broken, the empty, the oppressed. In Luke 4, I love this story. In Luke 4, it talks about Jesus going back to Nazareth, his hometown, and he goes into a synagogue. And he walks up in front of the people. He takes the skull from the attendant and he opens it up and he starts reading from Isaiah. And he says this. He says, I, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives. Recovering sight to the blind to set free those who are pressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord. And then he rolls up the scroll and he hands it back to the attendant and he goes and sits down. It's like the original mic drop. Right? He reads that. Here you go. Goes and sits back down. And everyone looks at him like, what? It says, everyone was amazed and all eyes were on him. And as he's sitting there, he says, what you have heard today has been fulfilled. And then they're like, what? Notice he didn't say, hey, I have come to establish my earthly kingdom that will rule over everybody. I will establish my authority, my power. Oh, I came to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to proclaim liberty for the oppressed. God has a heart for the poor, for the oppressed for the marginalized, for the lost, for the broken. And for for us, church, our faith lived out will have the heart of Jesus. It will fight against favoritism and prejudice because it will see and understand and know how God values those who are being oppressed. James goes on to use an example that many, many of the, the people would understand during this time. Many of the Jewish Christians that James was writing to, they would understand. Because as they walked into a synagogue, a deacon would also, would often um, escort somebody to their seat. As someone walked in, the deacon would say, okay, let's go find a seat, and they, they would take them to the seat. So James uses an example that they would understand and says, hey, if a rich man walks into your assembly, walks into your church, with the gold ring and fancy clothes. I think the, the literal word means shiny. It could mean shiny. If a guy wearing a gold ring and shiny clothes walks into your church and your assembly, and also a poor man with shabby clothes walks in, and you pay more attention to the guy with fancy clothes and a gold ring and say, hey, you come sit here. Come sit in a good place with a comfy chair. And you, and you say to the poor man, hey, just go stand over there, just, just stand back here with me or just, just sit on the floor at my feet. He says, you make distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. And he goes on to say, listen, my brothers, listen, family, brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the very kingdom that he has promised to all those who love him? Now, James is not saying that all of the poor are chosen or that only the poor are chosen, right? God shows no partiality, no favoritism. He promises the kingdom to all who love him. But the poor who are rich in faith are those who have faith in God. And they are rich in faith because, let's be honest, they have a lot more opportunity to trust God. They have nothing. They have to depend on him. Theologian F.B. Meyer says it like this. He says, the rich may trust him, but the poor must trust him. They have no fortress to run to hide to except the two strong arms of God. The poor have this dependence on God for all things. But the rich have this faith too. But yet, with the rich, there are a lot more obstacles to this faith because it is so easy to become wrapped up in what we have, to become self-absorbed, to become boastful before God, to become self-sufficient, to have this attitude of, I don't need you. Don't we see this play out in our lives? Like, I'm sure we've all gone through seasons of financial need, right? Maybe when you got married, had nothing. Maybe when you started having kids, you have even less. You have more stuff, right? But it's not yours. It's, it's a bunch of stuff for your kids. But in those times, don't we cry out to God and say, God, I don't know how we're gonna make it. We have this dependence on him that says, God, I need you to show up. I need you to intervene here. I don't know how we're going to make it, other than you showing up, you intervening. But then we—it's—it's it's a season, right? So there may there may be seasons too where we're we have a little a little cushion, financial abundance. Maybe not abundance, but. We're not worrying whether we're gonna be able to put food on the table for our family. We're good. We're good. And often those times are times where we say, God, I got it, I'm good. I had a friend that, said, that told me he, he and his family one year made $20,000. Had three kids, 20, One year made $20,000. He said, you know what? It was one of the best years of our lives. I've never felt closer to God than that year. The poor are rich in faith because they have nowhere else to turn. It's a daily understanding of God, I need you to show up. Wake up in the morning, I don't know how I'm gonna do it today. Show up, Jesus. The rich tend to have an attitude of, I got this. I'll call you when I need you. Not only do the poor exhibit a humility toward God and that they know their utter dependence on him for all things, but they also exhibit this humility towards others in the sense that they do not think of themselves better than others or claim privilege or entitlement over anyone else. Family, if we're gonna gonna fight against this favoritism or prejudice that James is talking about, it has to start in humility. This understanding that I too have done nothing to earn the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. I haven't done anything to earn it. So how can I put the burden on somebody else that they have to earn it from me? It has to start in this humility. If it doesn't, it fosters into this arrogance and pride and I'm better than you. Our view of others quickly turns into us versus them. Or let me fix you. Or I'm right and you're wrong. It becomes a, what can I get from you? What can I get from God? This arrogance and entitlement of I deserve it. Does this sound like the love and grace of God that is free to all who believe? Kind of sounds like our Facebook news feed, right? I deserve it. I'm right, you're wrong. Let me fix you. Family, humility will produce in us a faith that allows us the freedom to see others and value others how God sees them. That every man, woman, and child was created in the very image of God. Favoritism and prejudice, discrimination, oppression have no place in our lives or in the church because it dehumanizes God's very own image bearing creation. James goes on to say, You have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Here James seems to say, look, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You're showing favoritism to the very group who is using their social influence and power to drag you into court and oppress you. You have it backwards. And if you understood, if you, if you saw others and value others how I see them, you'd understand that the rich are not the ones who have earthly treasure. The rich are the ones who have a dependence on God for everything. Real faith will fight against prejudice and favoritism because we're able to see God, others, how God sees them. And then we're able to love them as ourselves. He says if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Great, good job. Keep on. But, if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. First James refers to this as the royal law. And royal can be translated as belonging to the king. This is the king's law. It comes from him with his authority. His power. And James seems to be connecting the Old Testament moral law since he claims Leviticus nineteen eighteen here. Well what with what the Jewish Christians knew was the new covenant, Jesus' teachings. Jesus, while giving the Sermon on the Mount, says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is what the Old Testament law and prophets were pointing to. He was the promise that they proclaimed. Later on in the book of Matthew, when a Pharisee who was an expert in the law asked Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In these two, all of the law and prophets are fulfilled. He's saying, look, all of the law, all of the prophets are fulfilled in these two things. Love God and love others. We can sum it up with that. But if you break those, you're guilty of all of it. So who's our neighbor? I want to hear from you. Who who James tells us love your Jesus tells us love your neighbor as yourself. Who's our neighbor? Everyone. Everyone. Back in the day, the Jews understood neighbor to to kind of mean their fellow Jew. The Israelites understood Loving your neighbor as yourself meant. Love your your fellow Jew as yourself. And Jesus came and expanded that and said, hey, 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 hey. (laughs) Nope. Your neighbor now includes anyone you have the opportunity to come in contact with. It's no longer your fellow Jew. It's the Samarian. It's the Greek. The slave to everyone you have opportunity to come in contact with. But wouldn't that be nice if Jesus still allowed the neighbor just to mean the group of people we already identify with? Those who are similar to us, those we easily connect with, those who are easy to love. Because there are some people who are easy to love, right? And then there are others who are not. But when we choose to only love the people that are easy to love, which if we're honest, tend to be people who are similar to us or we easily connect with or the people that don't demand much emotional effort or physical time. then what we communicate to the world around us, to those that are hard to love, is that they're not worthy of our time, or even worse, they're not worthy to be loved. Church, what are we communicating by the way we live our lives, how we live out our faith? What are we communicating to the world around us? What are we communicating to those who are different from us, far different from us, who don't believe the same thing we believe? What are we communicating to the Democrat at work? What are we communicating to the atheist? What are we communicating to the LGBTQ family member? What are we communicating to the Muslim we meet at a coffee shop? Because we're communicating something. Now, it might be filtered on their part from past experience, but we're, we have the opportunity to rewrite that story, that narrative, that experience. Is there someone in your life that you're struggling to love? Is there a group of people where you're just like, man, they're wrong. I'm right. Where do you find yourself favoring one group of people over another or at the expense of another? Is there anyone in your life where you just tell yourself, I just do not have the time or energy to love them right now. Or are there honestly people in your life where you just don't know how to love them? Maybe pray through these things and ask God why. But be prepared for a hard answer. Because a lot of times the root of that why is pride, is arrogance, is an area of our life where we figure we got it all figured out and I'm right and you're wrong. Honestly, as, as, I've, my, as I was preparing for this and I too asked myself those questions, is there anyone in my life that I'm struggling to love right now? Is there a group of people in my life that maybe not outwardly, but in my heart, I show favoritism for? Or I discriminate against, or I have a hard time loving. God was faithful to answer those questions, and I had to repent. How do we love our neighbor? If we're called to love our neighbor, and we know our neighbor now is everybody that we have the opportunity to that have that we come in contact with, how do we love them? Loving loving your neighbor means being for their good, being for them for their good without expecting anything in return. Philippians two says, "Do nothing out of selfish ambition." or vain conceit but in humility consider others interests before your own loving your neighbor means considering what might be good for them their interest before your own now loving your neighbor does not mean you agree with or condone or approve of everything your neighbor does or says. Being for them and for their good does not mean dismissing sin. Instead, it's reminding them, instead, it's helping them recognize their need for a Savior. If loving our neighbor means being for their good without expecting anything in return, what is the ultimate good? What is our ultimate good? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate good. So one of the best ways we can love our neighbor is to remind them that they're living in the context of a true story they might not even know about. It's loving them in a way that says neighbor, family, friend, foreigner, refugee, oppressed, lost, broken. You are created in the image of God. But because of sin, we have a self-centered rebellious heart that rebels against God and rebels against others. But God promises to reconcile this. God promises to send someone that will redeem this heart. And he sends his son to die on a cross so that we are no longer bound to this self-centered, rebellious heart, but now we are free to live out out of a new identity, a new heart. And he promises this to all who believe. And when we choose to believe and have faith in this God, he says, I will send my spirit to help you grow in the knowledge and the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ so that you may now go into all the world and tell them what I did in you, what I did for them. And then one day, all those who chose to believe in this Jesus, all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and depend on him. One glorious day we'll all be seated around a banquet table. Not recognizing anybody by their race, not recognizing anybody by the nation they came from. What they're wearing, how much they have, we'll all be seated at this banquet table. No one more important than the other no one better than the other. Rejoicing together with one voice because we get to sit in the presence of the very God we worship. We get to see his face now. What a glorious day that will be where we are not no longer divided and segregated by the labels our world puts on us, but we will be one family Rejoicing with one God. That is what this faith lived out should communicate to the world we live in. That we love and have faith and are obedient to an impartial God who loves us without judgment. James goes on to say and says, so now, he ends with this, so. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is reminding us, remember who you are now. Remember who you are. You no longer live under the law of condemnation. You are in a new covenant. You now live under the law of freedom. You are a new creation, the old is past. Behold, the new has come. The law law of liberty is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. What we are now born into, our new identity, that we are seated in the heavenlies with Him. Live out of this. Real faith that fights against favoritism must be rooted in the gospel. It's got to be rooted in the gospel. Because how are we to see and value others as God sees them if we don't know and understand how God sees us? How are we to love our neighbor as ourself if we don't know and trust how God loves us? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that because of his great love for us, God being rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. That even while we were dead in transgressions it is by grace we have been saved through this faith. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of anything we've accomplished. It is by grace we have been saved. He loves us because his love Because he is love. Without partiality, without judgment. And real faith in this loving God will see others how he sees them so that we can love others how he loves us. And friends, if, if you don't know this faith, if you have not tasted of the faith that is freeing, if you do not believe in this Jesus who does not use his authority or power to oppress us, to establish his own kingdom for his own selfish gain, if you don't know this Jesus who shows us grace and love and mercy so we don't have to perform, so we don't have to earn it, but we get to live in it. If you don't know this faith, ask me about it. Church, may we be a church who shows no partiality or judgment, no matter who walks through our doors, that we would love them with the love of Jesus Christ because we see, him, we see them as he sees us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we do now live in freedom. Not the freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Because that's not true freedom. Slavery to sin. Jesus, continue to open our eyes and our hearts as we go from this place into our workplaces into our culture, into our world. Open our eyes and open our hearts to see, allow us to see our own prejudices, our own favoritism. Spirit, work in us that we may fight against us. We may fight against the prejudice, Jesus. For their good and your glory. It's in your name we pray, amen.